Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Colin Wheel, who's the co-founder of Mind, which is a small property residential management company. Many of our podcasts have focused on the apartment business from one perspective or another. This is the rental business, but one, two, three, 10, 20 unit properties, not the institutional scale of the REITs and big firms that we tend to cover in institutional real estate. And Colin will go into it, but the business that he's tackling is far larger in total spend than the large-scale apartment business, and for comparison's sake, two times the total spend of the entire hotel industry, and it's still a totally fragmented business. There's opportunity for size and scale. This is Colin's third company, and he got his start at Boeing, working in robotics and artificial intelligence, where he earned several patents developing an anti-lock brake system for aircraft. This is one smart guy who somehow came into our real estate world. I want to thank our sponsor, JLL, a leading professional services firm that's reimagining the world of real estate by creating rewarding opportunities and amazing spaces around the world so that people can achieve their ambitions. JLL has been an important partner to support the thought leadership of Leading Voices and helping us to continue and grow the podcast series. For more information on JLL, visit us.jll.com voices. We appreciate your listening in on the podcast. A favor, if you like the podcast, tell your friends about it. You've heard me say this before, but we intend leading voices for two audiences. One, leaders talking to leaders, and two, leaders talking to young people entering the business who are thinking through potential career paths in real estate. A lot of us meet young people frequently who are seeking career advice in the real estate business. Next time you chat with one of them, refer them to the podcast. It's a great tool for young people to imagine their career paths, as well as where they might make a difference and find their passion in the world of real estate. In other words, pass on the podcast, please. Enjoy the conversation with Colin and see you next time. Colin Wheel, thank you very much for joining Leading Voices in Real Estate today here in my office in San Francisco. Uh, I'll tell our listeners that it's uh, still a smoky day with the bad uh, fire smoke in the air, which is kind of brutal for us all, but we're not wearing face masks. So (laughs) thank God for that. Colin, I always like to start with a Genesis story about where someone came from and their life story and their career story. But I do want to start with the elevator understanding of what you do at Mind and talk to us a little bit about the overall rental business and the part of the rental business that you guys are targeting and what that business is. Great. So Mind is a full-stack, tech-enabled property management company focused on what we call small residential, which is single-family rentals plus small multifamily buildings, buildings up to 49 units. Mm -hmm. And Mind is a full-service property management company for that. So the small residential industry is a $430 billion a year industry. That's the total rent collected in small residential. It's Uh twice as big as the hotel industry. And third-party property management, the fee revenue from third-party property management companies is $29 billion a year. So that's a massive industry. And yet it's highly fragmented. There are over 30,000 companies that provide third-party property management Mm -hmm. services for small residential. And the largest one has less than 1% market share. In fact, they only have one-seventh of 1% 
market share. So it's so nobody's operating at scale and nobody's really applying technology. Okay. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, both in terms of what you did at Waypoint and now what you're doing at Mind. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. How did you get here? Let's let's talk about you and your background, how you got here. And I think one of the headlines is going to be you're a technologist. That's so, right. So, but first, you know, where did you grow up and kind of what brought you into this world here? Yeah. So I grew up, moved around a bit, but Washington, D.C. for my early childhood through age 10 and then Reno, Nevada, age 11 through high school. Okay. I went to Cal and studied mechanical engineering and was really interested in robotics and then got kind of a dream job for that for me um, at Boeing in a research and development group focused on automatic control systems on airplanes. So I was writing algorithms for automatic control systems on airplanes right out of college, which was nirvana for me. I bet it was. So how long did you do that? And then you invented something major while you were there. So talk about that. Yeah, so I was at Boeing for four years. And while I was there, I um, invented a new way to control anti-lock brakes for airplanes. So just the software, how they're controlled, but it allowed airplanes to stop in a 5% shorter stopping distance on icy runways. And so occasionally back then, you'd have an airplane going off the end of an icy runway. I remember. Yeah. yeah. And um, so this, you know, sometimes would make the difference between that happening. So that's, you know, I got patents in my name for that, even though they're owned by Boeing, but that was okay. It was just the badge of honor of, you know, of having patents as, a, as an engineer. And um yeah, and so it was also, I used AI in an, in an, well, it was the first use of AI in, in Boeing, in any algorithms for automatic control systems at Boeing on the airplane. So I heard the word algorithm and I heard the word AI, and I don't know what they mean in context of anti-lock brakes for a jetliner using artificial intelligence. Just, again, this isn't what we talk about on our podcast, but I am so curious. Sure. Yeah. So basically, um, what I did was write software that really thinks like a human. It actually models human thinking. So you have a highly nonlinear system with the anti-lock braking the, both the phenomenon of the wheels and the runway, but also the hydraulic system. Mm -hmm. And so the traditional approach to automatic control system design, this might be too much detail, but okay. is to create a, a, a model of linear differential equations of the system that you're trying to control. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, you can derive another set of linear differential equations for the control algorithm itself. But when you have a highly nonlinear physical system, mm -hmm. then that traditional approach breaks down. And so this was a completely novel approach that didn't try to model the underlying system at all, but rather tried to model uh, an intelligent thinking process for how, you know, this is happening 200 times a second, but basically how to release brake pressure to prevent a skid, but only release the absolute minimum amount of brake pressure to avoid a skid without giving up any extra braking. I think I got that. So, and part what what a would would a human be able to do that if they were thinking very quickly? Yeah, if you could sit in there and think and make this decision 200 times a second and look at the wheel as it's starting to slow down too quickly, mm -hmm. a human could do the same job. And that's the breakthrough in thinking is to go in that direction. Yes. And so I was applying techniques that were in artificial intelligence. I wasn't coming up with the, you know, the con those concepts de novo, but was applying them to that problem. Right. 
Okay, we will move on, but that's fascinating. Thanks. And then after four years, so you create this, and then you go off, and what did you do? The, yeah, I, you know, I always knew I was an entrepreneur at heart, and when I decided to go to Boeing, it was because I wanted to experience what a big company was like. I figured I'd never want to go back and do it later after being an entrepreneur, so I, so I checked that off my list early on. And But then... You know, I was a little bit frustrated with the large bureaucratic feeling of Boeing and was ready to do something more entrepreneurial. So I became an independent software consultant. And I did that for five years at Hewlett Packard and Oracle, doing all kinds of different software development. And then in the very early days of the internet in 1996, I spent a year consulting at Netscape and became one of the very first Java programmers in the world at that time. And then as Java um, be started to become the language for e-commerce um, and more people wanted to learn Java, I developed the Java curriculum for UC Berkeley Extension and taught evening classes in Java to uh, software engineers who wanted to learn Java. And I did that every quarter while continuing my consulting, now focused around Java programming. Right. And the demand skyrocketed for Java engineers, and there was nobody with very much experience because it was brand new. So I started a consulting firm. I hired a lot of my previous students and other people that I knew and quickly grew this company to 35 people, mostly all software engineers, developing, this is now 98, 99, during the dot-com boom, a lot of both dot-com startups, but also we developed Charles Schwab's online trading website, so large clients and small clients, and I got to experience the whole dot-com boom phenomenon firsthand, and then luckily was able to sell that company just at the beginning of when things were starting to unwind in 2000. Um, and that's when, you know, I, I had some capital from mm -hmm. that and, and began investing a little bit on the side in real estate. So that was my first time uh, really learning anything about real estate was after that exit. Right. So let's go back for a sec. And at that time, I was an early user of Schwab Online. Yes. And so they entrusted your your group of bandits who are using Java to create a website. I would think if this is a thousand minions figuring this out versus a bunch of guys yeah. in Berkeley at the kind of forefront of this thinking. I'm just curious yeah. how you even conceived of that because the internet, e-commerce in that way didn't exist yet. Yeah, so, so Charles Schwab was so early with their website that their initial version was written in C. Uh -huh. Like nobody ever wrote websites in C, but they did uh, because they were so, so early. And then they knew that they wanted to migrate to Java. So what we did was we created the Java infrastructure, the model uh -huh. for how they do that, and the first pieces of the website to migrate over and then trained their teams. And they had a, a large team of engineers and worked together. We wrote the software architecture roadmap and and had the first implementation of part of the website coming mm -hmm. over to this architecture, which we wrote. And, uh, you know, when it went live, it was on 120 servers, which at the time, it was the largest e-commerce website in the world. Wow. And I, I like to think of your putting this into a software language, but I'm also curious how much conceptualization was behind this because no one had traded a stock online before. Yeah, so, so we what we did was not 
we weren't designing the website at all. We, we were simply implementing the back end of it. Okay. So you sell your business, you have some money in your pocket, and you put it in real estate. As a side venture okay. with, a, with a, a friend of mine who had, he had a mobile home park. Uh-huh. And I just thought that was the, the strangest and funniest thing. And um, I started asking him about it, and I had him walk me through the numbers. And I'm very analytical and, and also very investment-minded. And I realized, wow, this is really compelling. I had been investing in the stock market. I had some great investments in Microsoft really early on and AOL and then Yahoo. And, but this was something very, very different. But I loved that it was highly reliable income. Mm-hmm. I mean, mobile home parks, like nobody leaves. Uh, it's it's the, the most reliable income you can, you can have. Yep. And the whole thing made sense to me. And I felt like it was a sort of the marketplace was getting the value of mobile home parks. They were undervaluing mobile home parks relative to apartment buildings at the time, which has played out. It's changed, yes. Um, yeah, it's changed since then. Um, so it was partly a, a counter, you know, disruptive play against the, the norms that, you know, and I'm always looking for in, inefficiencies in a marketplace and where, where are the masses getting something wrong and what's some unique insight that I have that's different than what everybody else thinks but I, but I have conviction in that. I'm, I'm willing to place a bet on that idea. Mm-hmm. And, and if that idea is counter to what most people think, all the better because mm-hmm. that's where the opportunity lies. Got it. And so eventually this becomes – you go and co-found Waypoint Homes. Yeah. So, so I had bought a couple mobile home parks and a mini storage facility with one friend – you know, for various, we we had a long term buy and hold strategy, but for one reason or another, we ended up exiting each one of those. Um, and in two thousand and eight, I was looking at what was happening with single family home prices in the Bay Area, in certain Bay Area communities like Antioch and Vallejo, where homes had lost seventy percent of their value from the peak, mm-hmm. and uh, yet rents weren't off at all. Uh, or maybe we're ever so slightly down. And I realized I could get more yield on a single family home than I could on a mobile home park. And nothing like that had happened before. And that got me really intrigued. Uh, And then I was a member of an investor club and Doug Bryan, uh, who's now my business partner, was also a member of that group. And we we had a real estate brainstorming meeting with there were 35 of us in the room sharing ideas of what are we all investing in and seeing and liking out in the real estate market and this is the date of that meeting it was in October 2008 and I remember that because Lehman Brothers had just declared bankruptcy in September so we're one month after Lehman going under and like so it was Armageddon and People are going around the room sharing what they're like. And, you know, one person likes, you know, office, like suburban office buildings in tertiary markets. And someone else likes, you know, large multifamily and this and that. And Doug Bryan said he's looking at single family homes to buy and rent out in a long term buy and hold strategy in some of these East Bay markets. And I'd been looking at the same thing. So I, I, said, yes, I love that idea. Everybody else in the room hated it. Really? <laughs> we were, yes. We were, like people thought houses are the worst possible 
kind of asset that you can own. Because remember, this is the foreclosure crisis at its worst moment. And the whole foreclosure crisis, the whole economic downturn was caused by housing, Yep. right? So houses were toxic. And so everybody else hated it. So Doug and I agreed to go get coffee and talk about maybe doing something together. And we ended up pooling some of our own capital to get started and test out the thesis. Right. And we ended up buying about 25 homes one at a time over the course of a few months in uh, Vallejo, Antioch, and Pittsburgh. Right. And realized like we were buying houses for less than $100,000 that had last sold for over $400,000 just two or three years earlier. Mm-hmm. And we were able to rent them out and we were able to get great yields. Like we're talking about, you know, eight, 9% cap rates on single family homes at that time. And we knew we were, we were onto something here. So the question was, could we scale it? Because the wisdom at the time was single family rental is not scalable. And uh, we, we decided to start a fund, you know, raised $7 million from friends and family which we would then matched with $7 million of debt. So 50% LTV, mm-hmm. we would buy these homes and then put a 50% loan on them. So everyone had an individual loan. We bought 104 houses in that first fund, took us six months to deploy. And by then we had to have the next fund raised because we were, we were starting to hire people and build systems. And we really had a vision that we could scale it. Mm-hmm. And when does the part of you that thinks about artificial intelligence and scalability, I, I guess this is when it kicks in, but had you realized early, because you moved from I'm an investor and I see a yield play and an inefficiency in the market to, whoa, for the first time in history, we could maybe make something huge or just a little bit scalable. When yeah. That's your so thing. I, I remember – a conversation we had with Scott Sellers, who was the CEO of Archstone. Uh-huh. And he was also one of our investors and agreed to join our advisory board. And he was a friend. And Scott said, you know, with all due respect, like, I love what you guys are doing. At this point, we were buying about 25 houses per month. Uh-huh. We'd scaled up to that capacity. And he said, I love what you guys are doing, but I think you're about to cap out at what you can do because single family just buying those assets is so hard and there's and then renovating them and then you're in a long-term buy and hold strategy so you have to manage these assets over a long period of time you have to drive around he said it's one thing if you're directly overseeing the people that are touching the real estate but when you get to the size where you need another middle layer of management between Mm -hmm. you and the real estate that's where I think it, you're going you're gonna to cap out. And we said, well, with all due respect, we think we can build a cloud computing, mobile computing infrastructure, a single system of record that our people use, but also the residents use, our vendors, we're all connected into a single. And then we can build systems on top of that to automate a lot of the functionality or just systematize what happens so it all run smoothly and we're not dropping balls. Mm-hmm. And um, and we, th- you know, nothing like that had ever been done before. And we said, we think if we're right, not only is single family rental 
scalable, not only can it be scaled, but it, it, it will actually benefit from the economies of scale. And that's what ultimately proved out. Uh-huh. It, it, funny for Scott to have said that to you because Archstone was one of the pioneers in technology in the multifamily industry. And I'm guessing if the multifamily industry hadn't paved the way that those things that you then were able to do wouldn't, it would have been too far a leap. Um, I don't think that's no? quite right. No, the multi the technology that the multifamily industry uses is very different. It the problems there that they need to solve are very different problems, and so it's true that they were Scott was brilliant and he was a technologist. And he he was forward thinking, but he was also all about operating at big scale and wanting these apartment complexes mm-hmm. to become even bigger and bigger. So going up from two hundred unit complexes to 500 unit complexes and, and right. even larger because the economics work better they what they the problems they were trying to solve were not about trying to systematize a large distributed logistics operation fair deal fair deal so you go about and you do this and does this t- tie into the part of you that had come from a technology background, so you're oh, absolutely. jamming. This is yeah, it was nir- yeah, it was a, a very happy time. The for second me. Nirvana, for yeah, you. the second Nirvana. I mean, we we're you know very sophisticated algorithms that allowed us to price and decide how much we're willing to pay for properties based on feeds of data, all kinds of data coming in from you know all across the country, so that the moment a house hits the MLS, we have an algorithmically derived estimate of what we're willing to pay for that house, we would mm-hmm. still have somebody drive by the front of the house and, you know, put a human set of eyes on it to, before we pulled the trigger. But right. we had this very sophisticated operation. And then on the management side, there's just sort of an almost endless list of interesting problems that can be solved using technology. Uh-huh. So. Tell the story of Waypoint and, and what happened and how did it grow, and then it became part of other companies, some of yeah. all of whom we know. So talk yeah, about that. so we raised a series of funds. Each fund was bigger than the last. At this time, there had, you know, by by 2011, there still had been no um, institutional investment in single family rental, and then we raised the first institutional capital into single family rental. So that we had raised about seven high net worth individual focused funds, mm-hmm. and then we raised first twenty five million from the Columbia University Endowment, and then two hundred million from GI Partners, a private equity firm, mm-hmm. and um, and then we also did the first large um, debt facility that was secured by a pool of single family houses instead of putting individual mortgages on each one. That was a breakthrough on the debt side. Right. So we were we were really pioneering the way for this industry. It was quite fun because in the, around the middle of 2011, the largest private equity real estate companies in the world, Starwood Colony and Blackstone, all came into the space. And it was like it, it, suddenly it was an industry. It was a new industry. Whereas in the early days, we were fighting uphill. People thought we were like the, had this crazy idea about a niche investment. That's mm-hmm. how people right. thought of it. And then all of a sudden, it was a new industry, like as soon as those big guys came in. And when did you prove to yourselves or to the market that this wasn't a prices are depressed play, but that it's a consolidation play that could be permanent? Right. So we had a we believed pr- pretty early on at that point that 
the kinds of investors who were investing early, like these high net worth individuals that were hoping for pretty large returns, like 20% IRRs kind of thing, and the same with the private equity investors, that that was going to transition over time as it became a mature industry to more um, low yield, more conservative investors like pension funds and endowments. Um, And if you look at the public REITs in multifamily at the time and other real estate asset classes, and there was obviously there was no single family REITs yet at that Mm -hmm. time, but the expected yield, the expected investment returns were much lower. And we believed that, hey, if investors are willing to take those lower returns for single family rental, it'll still work after home prices return to normal. Mm-hmm. And we, we believed that to be the case, and then that was what pl- how it played out. But what really was uh, a, an important moment for us was after we went public. So we went public on the New York Stock Exchange after five, five years after starting the company as a REIT. This was a, in a partnership with Starwood, so it was called Starwood Waypoint. And um, that was in February 2014. And then now we were going to report our numbers every quarter to the street, mm-hmm. which we did. And uh, at that time, you know, we were able to prove that we were able to generate the same NOI margins, which is the primary metric by which REITs yep. are measured, mm-hmm. as the multifamily REITs. So mid-60s range NOI margins. So when the institutional, like when the big conservative institutional investors saw that single-family rental is generating the same NOI margins as multifamily, mm-hmm. then it was sort of ordained to be a legitimate asset class. Absolutely, with a lot of room to run because it hasn't been very consolidated. It not right. zero Even at all. Still to this day, less than two percent of all the single-family rentals are owned by large institutional. Mm-hmm. Investors. Hey, let's go back a sec. So you founded this with Doug in yeah. in the investment club room, right? And then you go out and have coffee, and you figure you're going to play with this thing, and you buy some houses, and then it becomes a tech and operational strategy pretty quickly. How did you and Doug kind of play being colleagues, partners, and what did you do? What did he do? Yeah, and, we have a great synergistic partnership. It, uh-huh. It's you know, we're, we both feel very lucky about it. Um, so Doug had a deeper real estate background from multifam- in the multifamily industry. He knew real estate much, much better than I had and was managing director of a, of a firm that did large multifamily investing. Uh-huh. Um, and he's also, he's much more of an operations, operationally minded person than I am. And so our division of labor at Waypoint, which worked really well, was he ran the, all the operations, so the property management um, in particular, which so most of the people in the company reported up to Doug. Mm-hmm. I ran uh, fundraising, technology development, and acquisitions. Our acquisitions is very kind of, you know, as I mentioned, algorithmically driven and and analytical in nature. So that made sense to be something that I would run. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then w- what happened? So you go public, and then there's a lot of consolidation. And as as you know, we 
did interview the company into which you became, if, yeah. if I said that right. So Invitation Homes, Fred Tuami was on a podcast and talked, spoke through this from a different vantage point. Yeah. But tell the story of how you got there, what happened to the company. Yeah. So, um, so after going public, um, we ran as a, a kind of independent public entity, Starwood Waypoint, for two years. Doug was CEO. I was chief investment officer for the first year. I kind of had a deal with Doug uh, that if we, it, you know, if and when we ever go public, I'll stay for a year and then I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. And so when we did go public, we put me in a role that uh, of chief investment officer, partly with the idea that I'd be able to exit pretty smoothly from that role. Uh-huh. Hey, last question about that. So, yeah. and why did you want? Why did you want to do that at that point in time? Say, I'll want to leave after a year. Um, I I love the beginning. I love the creation of Uh something new. Um, As a public REIT, there's not a lot of opportunity to innovate. Uh And it wasn't a way that I was interested in spending time. I I knew that would be the case. It was fun to do for a year. Really, not all that fun, but kind of, kind of fun. <laughs> Ringing the bell on the opening—that's fun. You right? know, that day was really fun. Um, but yeah, I just knew that, like, I, I want to be in a more innovative startup type environment. And so I went off after a year, and um, I'll tell the rest of the Waypoint yeah. story. But then also, it was during that time, a little bit of time off, um, that I, you know, kind of was able to clear my mind and think about and look at the broader. The broader ecosystem of an an opportunity set that ultimately led to the idea for Mind. Okay, but so with Waypoint, Doug continued to run the company until, um, including leading a merger with Colony American Homes. So, mm-hmm. Colony was slightly bigger than Wait than Starwood Waypoint at the time, and um, so when so. When that merger happened early 2016, so two years after we went public, um, Doug had the opportunity to stay on as president and and report to Fred, who was the CEO of Col- Fred Tuami, who was the CEO right. of Colony at the time. Or, you know, I realized here's an opportunity. At this point, I had the realization that there's a much bigger play, which is to be the to basically to own the entire property management space for small residential. And I, and I uh, was excited about the idea of doing another company with Doug. And so I was able to convince him. <laughs> I mean, I think he quickly realized he didn't really want that um, opportunity either of being president of a large REIT under, you know, especially after being CEO, then to not be CEO, right. but also the opportunity that we have with Mind is so incredibly compelling that it was an easy decision. So he left the merged, you know, uh, Starwood Waypoint and Colony right. company to, to join me to start Mind. Okay, and just let's talk through the postscript because I'm curious as that company, that combined company, then combined again with Invitation Homes, Blackstone's group, right? That Fred now runs, and. Um, but I'm curious if you look at the companies that merged into that entity, who had the – were all three taking the same approach, different approaches, and what pieces of your conceptualization and dreams survived or might have won out, if that's the right word? Yeah, I think um, 
all the companies took most of the companies took fairly similar approaches in terms of technology. Uh-huh. You know, we were friendly competitors with those guys in the early days, and they largely mimicked our technology approach um, and sort of technology stack. Mm-hmm. And so today, I'm not sure what exactly the what technology, you know, there are pieces probably from all three organizations. Right. I think, but I mean, I know our COO, um, who had started out as our regional director for Chicago and then managed the West Coast for us and then ultimately became the COO for us. He's now the COO for Invitation Homes. It's uh-huh. a pretty cool story. Um, so I think a lot of what they're doing is still heavily heavily influenced by what we uh-huh. did. But I, you know, I can't, I'm not, co- you know, That's aware good. of the details. And, and yeah. the last question, just thinking through from that time that you were in the investment club with the idea that let's invest. And I know lots of other small shops around the country were coming up with similar ideas, but yours became part of this company. Any sense of what you imagined it could become that it actually has become? So any commentary on that? Well, I remember like pretty early on in 2011 when the big institutional investors were just first going into the space and there started to be some excitement about is single family rental really an asset class i was interviewed on cnbc uh-huh. and i explained about the the whole technology story even then you know this is possible because of technology and 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 here's how and then also i said you know one day i predict that there will be publicly traded REITs in single family. And it was like this big prognostication. And then a few years later, that's exactly what came to pass. So we started to have ideas pretty early on, Mm -hmm. not when we were sitting having coffee at the very beginning, but you know, we kept realizing that, wow, this is a bigger opportunity than we thought it was. Uh-huh. That kept happening again and again. When you're with the right people and you take a concept and iterate it over a period of days, weeks, months, it's just an amazing experience. And you got to do that, and then it became a reality. It did. So what was this even bigger opportunity. So describe that you're going into it and seeing it being bigger and then talk more about it. Yeah, so when we had 17,000 houses under management at Starwood Waypoint, uh, we had over 500 employees, we had this technology platform, we felt like we could manage a lot more units than 17,000. We felt like we built the system, we kind of nailed it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. and. Looking around at the at this small residential industry that I described, if you think of single family rental plus the small multifamily combined, and we call it small residential, it's such a massive industry, 430 billion. It's twice as big as the entire hotel industry. That's so mind-bogglingly big. Mm-hmm. And the as I mentioned before, the the fee revenue collected by third-party property managers in small residential is $29 billion. So there's a play to, so here's this like old school industry that it's these mom and pop third-party property managers. First of all, a lot of people self-manage because they can't even find a third-party property manager that they trust. Mm -hmm. But for those who do, the level of satisfaction by the owners is not generally high. There are some really good ones, but by and large, 
it's a lot of it's an old school mom and pop industry <laughs> and they're not leveraging technology in anything like the way that we were at Waypoint and if you look back at the history of industries in America you know most industries started as mom and pop industries and then at some point in time there's a moment when they transition to becoming larger institutionally managed industries. So an early example would be the convenience store market. Mm -hmm. Before the 1950s, all the all the convenience stores were separate individually owned stores. And then 7-Eleven started in the 50s and they found that they could more efficiently control the supply chain and distribution of goods much more efficiently than a whole bunch of individuals trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to benefit from the economies of scale and that industry largely changed and it became an industry that was large and kind of very professionally managed versus being mom and pop. This is totally off the subject, but I'm so curious. Have you been in a 7-Eleven in the States? Yes. Yes. Have you been in one in Japan? No. They're amazing. You like want to go there. You could buy underwear, yogurt, five <laughs> times kinds of sushi, not just those hot dogs that roll on a thing. Yeah. So I'm a little nervous you're going to create a U.S. 7-Eleven industry in the mom and pop property management that's like the hot dogs rolling on a pin versus the J Japanese thing that's a cultured perfect model. I, I, I think Sorry about I have that. a feeling once I describe <laughs> what we're doing that it'll be, you'll think it's more like the Japanese version. Okay, cool. But so other industries in the 80s, you had the, the coffee shop industry undergo the same thing with Starbucks. In, you know, in the late 90s with the, with the internet, you had the travel agency industry completely transitioning. And instead of having lots of little travel agencies, you had Expedia and Travelocity. And uh, technology ultimately disrupted all of those. Even in the case of 7-Eleven, that disruption was driven by technology. It was the supply chain and distribution networks being at a, finally at a mature enough level to be able to support that. Mm -hmm. And in, in the case of Starbucks, it was computer systems being able to support tracking what's going on in thousands of little coffee shops. And um, obviously, in the case of Expedia and Travelocity, that's another example of technology disrupting an industry. And one by one, you know, the taxi industry was just recently disrupted by Uber and Lyft. Um, and that's another example of a mom and pop industry. There are thousands of little taxi companies around the country. And these industries are generally not disrupted by somebody coming up with a solution and selling it to the incumbents, like a software solution. Like if Uber and Lyft had tried to sell software, their software to the thousands of little taxi companies, right. it wouldn't have worked because those little mom and pop taxi companies are not gonna be able to scale and, and adopt that kind of technology. And the technology that you would develop for a little taxi company is very different than the technology mm -hmm. that you would develop for Uber or Lyft. And so it tends to be a full stack company that's providing a complete end-to-end -end service that's competing with the incumbents that disrupts an industry. So here we have one of the largest industries in America, which we're calling small residential, which has not been disrupted by right. technology yet. 
And we're kind of scratching our heads saying, why, why is that the case? Why hasn't anybody done this? And, and we understand how hard it is because we had just done it at Waypoint. So we're like, okay, it took us seven years at Waypoint to get the systems to the level that they were at the end. And it was really hard. And it took a lot of industry-specific property management knowledge mixed with a lot of technology merging together to make that happen. And we can kind of get why this residential property management industry hasn't been disrupted yet, Mm -hmm. but there's no reason it shouldn't be now because the technology, cloud computing, mobile computing, AI, all of it exists. People using the, the web, SMS, you know, we're at the point now where there are much, much better ways to manage these properties. There's no reason for it not to happen today. And we just learned a whole bunch of lessons at Waypoint about how to do it. So there's a small universe of people, really it's just people from the single family rental industry that had gone through that kind of technology experience that have the experience to be able to really do this. And we're two of them, (laughs) Doug and me. And so we should really go do this. So that's what we did. We'll return to the interview after this brief ad from JLL. What comes before any achievement? Ambitions, always. That's why we put ambitions at the center of everything we do. And why we always expect more, more for our clients, more from each other, more out of every single day. And we don't just recognize ambitions, we thrive on them. We are 75,000 people from every corner of the globe, united in our passion to ask the biggest questions, to go further, dig deeper, and to always deliver. Achieving ambitions powers us through our day, and that makes us different to other firms. It makes us speak up, reach out, and above all, stand out. It makes us each who we are, and it makes us all JLL. Now back to the conversation with Colin. It's interesting. I'm thinking back to in the I'm – I'm an apartment guy, so I'm thinking back to the apartment industry when it became technology-driven – and the biggest fear was that the people at their desktops, property managers at their desktops running DOS, <laughs> yeah. not even Windows, couldn't be entrusted to have a computer to do that business. Now, of course, now it's ten, you know, three, four, five generations past that, but also it's in your pocket, it's in your hand, yeah. it's on your earbuds right. to be able to manage on the go. Exactly. So you have so many tools to do that. Yeah. So how did you leapfrog and bring that to the industry without going to the incumbents? Yeah. So basically, we built our own technology platform for property management and included in that is accounting. So we've built our own software completely from the ground up. Um, an interesting side – well, I guess the key point is – that's not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's not inexpensive. Property management's very complex. I mean, the key things, the basic things you're doing are collecting rent, managing repairs and maintenance, and leasing vacant units. So they, none of those might sound that complicated, but all, all in. And 
especially considering the fact that these are people's homes where the renters live there. They care a tremendous amount about it. The owners, it's probably their biggest, you know, it's their nest egg. They care a lot about the investment. They're, the stakes are high and there's and there are a lot of different kinds of tasks to be done and the flow of money. And so it's a, it's a big complicated piece of software that needs to be created to support systematizing that. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of property management is the flow of money, right? It's who's late on their rent and how are we handling these security deposits and how are we invoicing or these vendors are invoicing us and making sure they're getting paid. So accounting software is an important part of Integral of to this. the whole thing. Integral to the whole thing. At Waypoint, we use Yardi, the, the biggest industry standard accounting platform. Um, and then we built all our software, a whole bunch of really cool, sophisticated software around Yardi, and then we integrated with Yardi. And that was our Achilles heel from a technology standpoint at Waypoint mm-hmm. um, that really limited us from from fully realizing the, the, the full extent of the vision. Um, and so when we started Mind, we realized that if we're going to do what we want to do, as big and audacious as this is going to be, we need to build our own accounting platform from the ground up as part of our whole property management solution. Mm-hmm. And we did. And so... It's not, it it it's not inexpensive to to do that and to build that. There have been a number of companies that have tried to do what we're talking about in the last, you know, five seven years, um, and most of, well, and they've they've mostly stumbled. And what, ex- what were they trying to do? Build a software for accounting for single family no, rental? No, no. More generally, build a tech-enabled property management company, a next-generation tech-driven, mm-hmm. full-stack property management company. Mm-hmm. Okay. So an example is Castle, who we thought was our leading competitor at the beginning of 2018. They were three, four years into it. They'd gone through Y Combinator, raised you know a few million dollars of capital, and seemed to and told a, you know, a story that sounded a lot like our story. Um, and then suddenly they um, shuttered their business. And you know, we ended up bringing on board one of their uh, founders, their CTO, co-founder and CTO, Scott Lowe, who's great. Mm-hmm. He's an important part of our team now. But you know, the reason they failed was had to do with just the the level of complexity of what they were trying to tackle. It's you know pr- both on the property management from an like an industry expertise side and just the complexity of the technology and, that they would need to build. And they were tackling it for single family for small rentals as well, not yeah. for because you could also get confused. Well, I'll make it work for office buildings while we're at it. No, no, no. They, no, they were focused on small residential mm-hmm. as well. Um, so that's one example. One rent is another example. I know at one point they laid off half their company, but they had started a couple years before us. You know, also had a similar vision to ours, but just you know, it's a hard it's a hard business to execute. And I think more importantly is it's very capital intensive. Like we've raised thirty six million in venture capital, and to build this sophisticated level of technology while ramping up an operating organization, it's not an inexpensive endeavor. Mm -hmm. And so for anybody to be a a really viable competitor in this space, I think, you know, $10 million of fundraise is sort of table stakes to start playing in this game. 
Well, you have to f- have create something that's end-to-end that works holistically or that's else right. you're dabbling and dibbling into it and it's never going to work. Exactly. So I heard you speak some weeks ago, which is why we're here today, but you spoke about acquiring some of those mom-and-pop companies that have 0.000 market share in this business. Yes. Why would you do that and how does that fit into having a place for this platform to start being tested and go? Yeah. So our uh, expansion strategy into new markets, we call it land and expand, is to is to expand into a new market by acquiring an existing property management company, potentially an old school company. We're going to migrate all the units over to our platform, so it doesn't really matter if their systems are antiquated. Of you know, it's assumed that they would be, but. Um, to get to have a toehold in the market, so we have a critical mass on day one. But more importantly, we like companies where the the principal of the company mm-hmm. is someone who um, who wants to join our team and be, you know, the regional director in that new market. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, we entered Seattle by acquiring a company that you know has about 700 units under management, but more importantly, it has a principal who loves what we're doing. He sees the writing on the wall that this industry, this is what this industry needs. It needs this kind of approach, this technology-driven approach and reinvention, and he wants to be part of it. And Mm -hmm. so he's now our regional director for Seattle. So it's great. We have someone with, we have 700 units, but we also have somebody who's passionate about what we're doing, who has longstanding relationships and knows the Seattle market really well. Right. And before you bought that, had you been just doing it here? And how did you acquire customers without having a platform? Yeah. So that's, we just expanded into Seattle, but we previously, we started in the Bay Area. And then the one other market that we've gone to is San Diego. That was our first expansion. Seattle's our second expansion. So in San Diego, we did something similar. We've actually acquired two companies in San Diego, but that was how we ended how we entered San Diego. I'm a owner of a single family home. Can I come directly to you and then all of a sudden get this technology and I'm managed? Or you need human beings on the ground too in any of these markets that these yeah, people provide? We need humans on the ground. There's There are certain management functions that have to be performed on the premises like repairs and maintenance related things or delivering a late notice if someone's late on paying their rent, things right. like that. So you're, as this becomes built out in uh, cities around the country, then you have a humongous team. So we'll, we'll kind of talk yeah. about that. Yeah. But but also the day I sign up and I'm a – for these Seattle clients of the company that you bought, yeah. did they all of a sudden get reports that they never saw before? They could find out what's going on at their property? How did, did that change immediately? Is that done yet? Yeah. Actually, we, we just closed on the Seattle – Acquisition, but we haven't rolled those units onto our platform yet. But for the San Diego example, where they are on our platform, yeah, the residents have an app that they can use to submit work order requests, um, you know, repair and maintenance requests, that is, mm-hmm. or pay their rent electronically through their phone. They can mm-hmm. see what they owe and why they owe it and things like that. Um, communicate with us. 
So, and then the owners have an app. This is something that's really unique in the industry where they can see what's going on with their property in real time. Mm -hmm. So if they have, if they want to see like, why hasn't this thing leased? Well, you know, how many viewings are there? What's the status? What does my portfolio occupancy look like if they have a whole portfolio of units? Ultimately, they'll be able to drill down into repair and maintenance issues and be able to see you know, the picture that the resident took when they took a picture and submitted the work order request, right. they'll be able to see the pictures that the, uh, the, you know, the plumber submitted when if we had to bring in a plumber and they took pictures of what was going on and have a full description. And, and so this like real time transparency of information of what's going on with the property that the owner has in their hand is unlike anything. It really changes the experience. Mm -hmm. And so talk about this as it builds out. So what does, what's the end game? And when, and when in the end game do you get bored and want to go create another one of these suckers? Yeah, this one, I, I don't know. I don't foresee getting bored. Uh -huh. um, part of, I think, what happened with Waypoint was we were a public REIT and we were boxed in in mm -hmm. that capacity. Whereas right now, I think, you know, if, if Doug and I, you know, um, are able to see our vision fully through will be you know will be public at some point down the road no time soon but at some point down the road but we'll have the full autonomy to keep innovating in new there's a, an endless way so what i talked about so far is the direct 29 billion dollar revenue opportunity which is the existing incumbent third party property management industry for small residential but in addition to that, there's an opportunity to grow the size of the pie, just like Uber and Lyft didn't just take away share from the taxi companies, but they grew the whole pie too because more people started using transportation services that didn't use them before because it was better. Totally true. And so if property management is better, people feel like they can trust it. They have that transparency. There's a big national branded company that's behind managing their properties, we think a greater percentage of the owners will choose third party versus self-managing mm -hmm. so we can grow the pie. But in addition to all of that, there's the opportunity to use our data, which will be the biggest data set around small residential by far in the country, to be able to um, offer new products and services. For example, insurance in a much more efficient way um, so we can offer owner's insurance. We can already offer owner's insurance today at a lower cost than they're typically paying because we, we have found insurance companies that if they know we're managing the property, they're willing to treat all of our properties that we manage as a single portfolio. And there are great economies of scale in insurance mm -hmm. as you get a larger portfolio. So we can pass that on to the owners. But in the future, we can do even more creative things with insurance. We can give them vacancy insurance, repair and maintenance insurance, you know, insurance that we're basically underwriting ourselves, as well as traditional insurance products. Mm -hmm. um, we can give them financing products. Maybe we're partnering with a bank. Maybe we're do, you know, creating something completely new ourselves. We can help them buy and sell. Again, maybe we're doing that with partners of ours, or maybe we're actually doing something like that ourselves. But really, if you look at all the relationships that a, an owner has that's part of managing their investment, 
you know, they've got a broker that's helping them buy or sell, and they have a banker that's helping them with financing, and they have an insurance agent, and they have a property management company. But the property manager is the most important relationship of all those relationships. It's the one that endures over a long period of time, and mm -hmm. it's the one that ultimately has the most influence over the outcome of their investment. So we think by owning that relationship with owners, we'll be the ones in a position to to offer any kinds of ancillary services. So it's almost an infinitely big opportunity. It's mind-bogglingly big. <laughs> it, it's funny to think about it that way because you also, you even change the dynamics of people who would invest in buying a single family or one to four unit home. Right, people could buy in a city that they've never been to. Right, and, and what are the competitors to something like this? And. It, it, one way I'm thinking it's Airbnb at one end of the spectrum. I, or I don't, and you think benefit it, from competitors, I believe. Well, some yeah, I don't think of Airbnb as a competitor. They're a marketplace for first of all, it's short-term rental versus long-term rental, two very different worlds. But secondly, there are a lot of companies that have solved the sort of the last mile problem of connecting renters with apartments or, or single-family rentals. So there are a lot of websites out there like Apartment List or Zillow or Trulia right. that renters can go to to connect with, to find an apartment that they want to rent. Uh -huh. We don't even try to solve that problem. We're not trying to, we, we, we're happy to work with Zillow and Trulia and Apartment List and all the others. So when, when we list an apartment, we syndicate through, out through all of them. That's a a tiny, tiny sliver of the whole property management problem, and it's right. well solved by others. So we, we're happy to mm -hmm. we're happy to just work with others on that. Um, Airbnb is kind of solving that piece of the stack largely, although they do they do handle the the money transfer, so it's a little different. Mm -hmm. But but we don't see Airbnb really being a competitor in even a potential competitor because they would never want to have the people and the complexity of the operation of what we're doing. That's right, because you're hands-on. They're totally an intermediary. They're 100% an intermediary right. with no team in the field except for salespeople, I'm thinking. Exactly. It's like a philosophically, like, completely different type of business. Uh -huh. are, are there any competitors coming into this space? Not really. There's, there's a little new company out of New York called Gr New York slash Florida called Great Jones that started like maybe just over a year ago. Um, there's still this company One Rent that at one point had to lay off half their workforce because uh -huh. they couldn't raise their next round, but they're you know they're still kicking around. Um, but in terms of like what we consider a really viable competitor that you know is building their own software stack from the ground up and tackling the industry the way we are. We don't think there is any. Mm -hmm. And talk about the endurance of your relationship with Doug and or how you split things up. Because you did it one way at Waypoint and you had certain responsibilities. He had certain responsibilities. Yeah. How do you do that now and what's the benefit of having a collaborator like that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's working really well. So Doug is CEO. Mm -hmm. He Most of the people in the company report up to him. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Same, same as at Waypoint. Yep. I also have engineering reporting up to me. Uh -huh. Until just recently, I had product. And then we turned that over to our COO 
Ali Nazar, who's who's awesome. And um, so, but I'm like overseeing, let's say, technology, fundraising, mm-hmm. and um, and then together we collaborate on our strategy. And then, but p- an important part of technology that I see—that's the part I'm most excited about—is the data science side. Mm-hmm. So I oversee a small data science team, but that'll grow. That's um, writing the sophisticated algorithms, applying machine learning, solving a lot of those key problems. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, technology and fundraising are with me, <laughs> and operations and sales and marketing are with Doug. I asked this question about artificial intelligence a few minutes ago, but now you you use the word data science. So just help me kind of yeah. blow my mind about what a data scientist does versus a programmer does. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, these terms are, are constantly evolving too. Uh-huh. So, you know, back when I was at Boeing, there wasn't like data science wasn't even really used as a job description. Or if it was, it was very, very niche and different. Right. Um, but today, what a di- data scientist really means is somebody who, in my mind, at least this is how I think of it, is somebody who's um, applying machine learning to solve problems. And machine learning, you can bucket very closely with artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. People, y- you know, you can read long blog postings about the difference or is, you know, machine learning's a subset of AI, but really, the easiest way to think about it and the way I generally think about it is AI and machine learning are, are synonyms. Uh-huh. And a data scientist is a practitioner of those. And is this allowing you to look at those things that are, I use the word fuzzy logic in a lot for some reason because I, I'm such a fuzzy person. But you yeah. get to a thing where you go, oh, what am I going to do here? How do you figure it out? Because it's not a binary solution. Yeah. And it seems to me that those are the places where the greatest value is actually added if you're able to come up with a computerized way to figure it out. I think so for this type of, the types of problems that we're trying to solve. So there are a lot of different kinds of problems that are solved by, let's call it AI, um, that are solved in very different very different ways. Mm -hmm. So like Google's famous for having, you know, created an application that can identify cats in photos, and they trained it with two million photos of cats, or mm-hmm. some of the photos had, like I guess half the photos had no cats, and the other half had cats. So when you have really large data sets, mm-hmm. there's, there are certain types of machine learning, or AI, I'll try to use consistent terminology, okay. that it, that's applied. But when you have sparse data, which is more often the case when you're in in um, inferencing, when you're trying to make business decisions replicable right. and automated, um, you don't you generally don't have really large data sets from which you of training data to solve problems, and that's where I think fuzzy logic you mentioned that's mm-hmm. you know that's uh, a very interesting. AI tool that can be applied to certain types of business problems, which I'm particularly keen on. So mm-hmm. that's that's one um, one of many like arrows in the quiver. Fair to. And there are a whole bunch of others: neural networks and state vector machines, and the list goes on and on. And they're just different techniques. Uh-huh. So you can keep dreaming and doing this amazing stuff in this business for a long time. There's so many alleyways into which to go. 
That's right. Fair deal. Be interesting. So to totally change subject and to start wrapping up, I read on your bio that you help facilitate or create a 10,000-acre nature preserve. So yeah. just how did that come about? Well, after I had sold my first company, I, you know, I told you I started dabbling on the side in real estate, but I also started a couple enterprises um, that were around rainforest conservation, which is a, a real passion for me. Right. And one is creating the Mamani Valley Preserve, which is a 10,000 acre nature preserve located in Panama um, at the narrowest point in Panama. So only 35 miles ocean to ocean. So the narrowest bottleneck in the whole biological corridor of species that migrate between North and South America. So from an eco, it's one of the most sensitive ecological hotspots in the world. It's considered one of the top biodiversity hotspots and cattle ranchers were cutting down this rainforest. I was looking for something to do philanthropically related to rainforest conservation and I was introduced to this person down in Panama who was wow. who had this idea uh, and was looking for someone to you know to come in and start buying this land mm-hmm. and so we partnered together and that was over 10 years ago and now have bought over 30 different separate properties in this valley and have largely succeeded in protecting this valley from further development and deforestation mm-hmm. wow I I, I was in the Canadian Rockies a couple years ago, and there are these bridges for wildlife to walk across the Trans-Canada Parkway, uh-huh. or highway, so that the lions, tigers, and bears, I guess there's no tigers <laughs> and lions there, but they can get across the highway, and so their ecosystem is not interrupted by this ribbon of road. Yeah, I love so that. So I'm imagining what you just described in Panama, the narrowest part in our two continents, that if our ecosystems aren't connected, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, exactly. So if that primary rainforest gets severed, right. it's a it's a big disruption for the flow of species. Absolutely. Well, God bless you for doing that. It's a wonderful thing. Last question is always the same, which is if you um, had 10 minutes or five minutes or uh, elevator speech with a young person getting into a real estate career or getting into their career, what would your advice be? Yeah, well... I think my advice would be that real estate tends to be an industry that doesn't move very quickly at all. Like it's one of the last industries mm-hmm. that's adopting technology, which is why only now is there this big VC craze around real estate technology. Right. Um, whereas most other industries have had that for decades. Um, and it's also just an industry that um, people just do it the same way because that's how it's done, and that's you know that's how you do real estate. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's tremendous opportunity to innovate in real estate, to think outside the box and try different things. And it's like we finally reached a time where it's sort of a tipping point where technology and changes in society, we're ready for all these new models in real estate. And yet it's so big, it's like turning the Titanic. And so for those people who are nimble and you know young and thinking outside the box and ready to innovate and willing to take a chance, there's a big opportunity to create new models, whether that's new models of technology or just new approaches to solving old problems that are a better fit as 
technology is changing society and society's real estate needs are changing. Mm-hmm. I, I think we see it more than ever. And it's interesting because 15 years ago in the last real estate technology boom, which I, I was involved with a little bit myself, is you were thinking it was in the computer. But it's actually the change in the hardscape as well. It's what WeWorks does. Right. It's what Airbnb does. It's what you're doing to the single-family rental business. It's what's happen- happening to the malls. Yeah, it's, most of this, it's not advanced technology. It's not rocket science. It's, right. it's applying basic IT, you know, basic technology to – but it's really about creative business models, right. new ways of solving problems, and meeting new needs like WeWork – is recognizing that companies more and more, their needs are changing really dynamically, really quickly. And um, that wasn't necessarily the case 30 years ago, but it is the case today. Absolutely is. Hey, Colin, thank you very much for coming and talking on Leading Voices. Yeah, my pleasure. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. 